honorees include Professor Hing, Silvia Rosales Fike, student Catherine Eusebio, and Tessa Rovero Callejo. For more information, call 510-540-5296 or go to www.eastbaysanctuary.org. This event is wheelchair accessible. And you are listening to 94.1 KPSA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPSB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpsa.org. It is 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Stay tuned. And welcome to Cover to Cover Open Book. This week, we bring you the edition of From the Vault that takes a look at one of the great creative spirits of the 20th century, Jimi Hendrix. In this condensed version of our four-hour documentary from 1982, we'll hear from Jimi, his family, bandmates, and friends who knew him best. So please stay tuned. I'm Brian DeShazer, director of the Pacifica Radio Archives, and welcome to From the Vault. This week, we bring rock and roll back to you. We listen to one of the great creative spirits of the 20th century, Jimi Hendrix. In a brief four-year period from 1966 to 1970, he would stun crowds with both his virtuosity and with the never-before-heard sounds he could get out of the electric guitar. Jimi Hendrix was a light that burned twice as bright, which unfortunately left this world at an all-too-young age of 27. He died on September 18, 1970. In 1982, 12 years after his death, a team of producers from Pacifica's flagship station KPFA 94.1 FM in Berkeley, California, including Barry Scott, Craig Street, and Don West, enlisted the help of Hendrix biographer David Henderson, who wrote Jimi Hendrix, Voodoo Child of the Aquarian Age in 1978, to produce a four-hour documentary honoring Jimi. The four-hour documentary compiled never-before-heard and rare recordings and interviews with Jimi Hendrix. There are also interviews with the people who knew him best, his family, blues singer John Hammond, who befriended the young Hendrix in Greenwich Village in 1966, Chaz Chandler, who brought Jimmy to England and became his manager, as well as his bandmates and Hendrix biographer David Henderson. And now we present highlights from that four-hour documentary here on From the Vault. That's why I make the money for is to make better things, you know, happen. Jimi Hendrix. I don't have no value in money at all. That's only, my only fault. Jimi Hendrix. I was good at things that I see and want and order you to try to put it into music. Jimi Hendrix. I, w- I want to have a stereo of where it goes up. The sound goes up and behind and underneath, you know. All you can get now is just across and across. 
you know, people really believe that that every single person is born here is completely different, you know. I mean, that's, that's true, but through the times, can you imagine all these, oh, what if we all are supposed to go to heaven? All can you imagine all these people who died beforehand, and all of us, all of them in heaven, yeah, all of them on top of each other, hey, man, good Lord, man, I don't have the rule up here. If it's real, you have no business dying, did you? So, oh, my God. <laughs> can you imagine that? Wow. changed the course of rock music with a grace and intensity that remains unparalleled. In his short career, he completely redefined the electric guitar. Jimmy was also a typical and at the same time tragic example of the constant struggle that exists between an artist's personal life and that shared by his public and his management. I'm Don West. I'm Craig Street. And I'm Barry Scott. Join us now for a close look at the life and music of Jimi Hendrix. Can you remember something really far back when you when you when yeah, you? Yeah, I remember when a nurse put the day. I remember. Can you really? Yeah, when a nurse. I, I don't know what I was there for, but I remember when I used to wear diapers. And then uh, she was like talking to me. She took me out of the uh, this crib or something like that. And then she went to the window. This is what in Seattle. And she showed me um, something up against the sky. And it was fireworks and all that. It must have been the Fourth of July, you know. Because and I remember and I remember her putting the diaper on me and almost sticking it, you know. I was, I was asleep, you know, then she put like that. I remember I didn't feel so good, you know. I must have, I must have been in the hospital sick about something. Can you remember any others? Well, I was small enough to fit in the clothes basket. I remember when I was small enough to fit in the clothes basket. You know the straw clothes baskets they have in America? Yeah. yeah. You put all the dirty clothes in. And there's, there's only about like that. Does it ha they call them hampers or something? Yeah, hampers. Yeah. I remember my cousin and I was in there playing around. Oh, yeah. But that must have been when I was about three or something like that. Uh, sometimes when you sit around, then you start remembering some of the things that happened beforehand. Those are the first two that comes to my mind. And some dreams that I had when I was real little, you know. Like my mother was being carried away on this camel. And it was a big uh, caravan. She's saying, well, I'm going to see you now. And she's going under these trees. You can see the shade, you know, the leaf patterns across her face. But she's going under this, you know, like that. And the sun, you know how the sun shines through a tree. And if you go under the shadows of the tree, the shadows go across your face. Well, these were in green and yellow shadows. Like she's saying, "Well, uh, I won't be seeing you too much anymore," you know. So I see. And then about two years after that, she died, you know. And I said, "Pia, where are you going?" Or like that, you know. I remember that. I always will remember that. There's some dreams you never forget. Jimi Hendrix was born in Seattle, Washington on November 27, 1942. His parents had at one time been vaudeville dancers. And in fact, many of Jimmy's flamboyant stage moves can be traced directly to those traditions. 
At the time Jimmy was born, his father, Al Hendricks, was in the service, stationed in the South, and first saw his son three years after his birth. At the time, um, uh, his mother and I, we weren't together, and I raised him more or less myself there, oh, between the help of my sister and my uh, brother and his wife. I know kind of around that uh, oh, Presley raise, I know, when I first noticed that he got interested in guitar. I used to notice that uh, where we stayed at, I used to have him clean up the bedroom all the time while I was gone. And when I come home, I find a lot of broom straws around the foot of the bed. <laughs> I asked him, I said, well, didn't you sweep the floor? He said, oh, yeah, he did. But uh, I found out later he used to be sitting at the foot of the bed there uh, strumming the broom like he was playing the guitar. And I saw where all the broom straws come from. Oh, I found an old ukulele that, uh, oh, I'm one of my jobs. Didn't have all the strings, so he got strings for it. He used to plunk away on that. He got good. Of course, it's only so far you go through ukulele. But uh, and then there was a friend of mine. Uh, oh, he had this uh, acoustic guitar. He wanted to sell for $5. So Jimmy told me about it, and I thought, okay, I gave him the money. He, he strummed away on that, and he used to be working away on that all the time. Any spare time he had, he used to be playing the guitar. So after he got good on that, I went and got him an electric guitar. And, uh, well, he played with various groups. Oh, oh, local groups around teenage dances and parties and what have you, things like that, or just little gigs on their own. Oh, that's the way it went with him. I mean, just, he'd always be strumming on him. At 17, Jimmy joined the Army Airborne. He was based at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, for his brief career as a paratrooper. I was in the Army for about 13 months, you know, because I got tired of that. It was very boring. And so I pretended that I hurt my back. And I really did break my ankle, so I got out my bed, you know. So I started playing around all over the South. You know, we had a band in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, I got tired of playing in that because, you know, we, they don't want to move anywhere. They just want to stay there. So I started traveling around. I went to New York and won first place in the uh, Apollo anniversary contest, $25. So I stayed up there. I started up there for about two or three weeks. And then I got eyes with us as, you know, the eyes of the brothers. Yeah. I went to the shop. I still like to um, you know, play with them, so I played with them for a while. And I got very bored, you know, because they get very tired of playing behind other people all the time. So then I quit them in Nashville somewhere. And I uh, went with this guy who was on a tour with BB King, Jackie Wilson, and Sam Cooke, you know, and all these people, Chuck Jackson. So I played, uh, I was playing guitar behind a lot of the acts on the tour. And uh, then I got stranded in Kansas City because I missed the bus, you know. Mm-hmm. I was in Kansas City, Missouri, and didn't have any money. And, you know, this group came up and brought me back to Atlanta, Georgia, where I met Little Richard, and I started playing with him for a while, about five or six months. And I got tired with that, you know, played some shows with I Continue Turner. Then I went back to New York and played with uh, Kane Curtis and Joy D. And I was playing with, all the time I was playing behind these different groups. And then I played with this little rhythm blues group named uh, Curtis Knight and the Squires. 
and I made a few records, you know, arranged a few songs for him. It was during the early 1960s that Jimmy made some of his first studio recordings. One now believes lost with Steve Cropper in Nashville, and this single recorded in Los Angeles with Rosalie Brooks called My Diary. Shortly after Jimmy arrived in New York, blues singer John Hammond came across him playing in a small Greenwich Village club. This was summer of 1966. I had just returned from Japan, and I was in New York getting a job together at the, the Gaslight, which was on McDougal Street. Got the gig together and was playing downstairs, and one night a friend stopped into the club after my show and said that there was a guy down the street playing uh, all these songs off an album of mine that I really had to go and see. I came down to uh, the Café Wa, which was a joint also on McDougal Street about a half block down from the Gaslight. I sat through about three songs until the show was over and then uh, was introduced to him by my friend Ben Applebaum. And he says, oh, hey, man, I know you. I've got your record. He called himself Jimmy James at the time. And we became friends instantly, it seemed. And I was very impressed with him and suggested that we put a band together and get a gig at a club right nearby, which was the Cafe Ogogo, which was on Bleecker Street and was probably the most happening blues and jazz club, I guess, in the village. 
everyone from the Beatles to the Rolling Stones to Bob Dylan to just about who's who was in to hear us play. The band was a drummer, bass player, keyboard players would uh, from time to time jam with us, among them Al Cooper and Barry Goldberg. Backup guitar was a guy named uh, Randy Wolf, who has since become Randy California. Jimmy and I uh, were the lead. I did the, the vocals and played harmonica, and he played the guitar, and everything else sort of fell together, and it was a groove. Experienced bassist Noel Redding. Well, I'd sort of played guitar professionally for about four years before, and uh, I was getting a bit sort of like disappointed because like it's hard to get work, etc. So I bought a musical paper and I saw that Eric Burden was looking for a band. So I went up to London, went to an agent, I found out the place, and I went round there, played guitar. Meantime, Chaz Chandler walks up to me and says, can you play bass? I said, no. So he said, can you try? I said, yes. So I played bass. I'd only played it maybe once before or twice before in Germany, on a blues maybe. And they asked me to join the group. I was surprised to get this call from London, England, and I didn't know who that'd be coming from. And here, Jimmy, he said to me, he said, well, Dad, he said, I think I'm on my way to the big time. He says, uh, I'm over here in England now, and they're building up a group around me, and he said, I'm naming it the Jimi Hendrix Experience. So I said, well, good for you, little son. I said, man, let's keep your nose clean and let's <laughs> keep in there wailing. So he told me, he said, well, he said, I'll be able to get you all out of the things that I always said I was going to get you. And I said, well, you take care of yourself. I said, I'm doing okay now. in England and most of the top English musicians were going to see him play. It was exciting for them to hear a black American as well versed in the blues as Jimmy was. Blues master Muddy Waters was a great influence and experiencing the blues is Jimmy's tribute to him. It was recorded at the Flamingo Club in London, February 1967. We asked John Mayall about the music scene in England during this period. I don't know, just all the blues and all the people that you hear about you know, that was kind of an underground movement. It really had no 
reflection on the charts or what people was playing on the radio. It was a club thing, it was an underground thing, the whole thing went on for years like that. It was only when Cream, um, you know, became international that, that people started to, you know, check it out. The album you got, Jimmy Hendrix Experience, that's what he was playing. When Chaz Chandler brought him to England, they just started off completely from scratch. You know, Stone Free, and that was his repertoire, all that first album, that's what he was playing. I'd been working in Germany for about two years, so I was out of England all the time. But it was mainly sort of um, the Kinks, the Small Faces, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones, really. And American music was coming in a bit then, like the Birds, the Move was just starting, Traffic, that was that period of time. Hey Joe had been a favorite song of Jimmy's when he was in New York. Dropping corn after corn into jukeboxes, he listened repeatedly to the Tim Rose version of the song. In December 1966, Hendrix released what was to become his first hit single. The DJs in the U.S. wouldn't play uh, Hey Joe because of uh, it said, I'm going to shoot my old lady. And uh, they just, I mean, that's true. And this, this is what he explained to me. After its release in England, Hendrix's first album came out in America. Even at this early point in his musical development, Jimmy was pushing electronic and recording studio technology to their limits in order to produce the sounds that he heard. The record surprised many listeners with its seemingly impossible guitar playing and stylistically diverse material. His name uh, Are You Experienced. It has uh, about three or four different moods. It has about two rock and roll songs, which you can call rock and roll, you know. And then it has... Uh, Maybe, you know, it has a blues, and it has a few freak-out tunes. A happy how-do-you-do to you. This is The Inside. I'm Harry Harrison, and welcome to our show. Every day, we let you, the listener, pick the record that we put into the in-sound spotlight. Today, one of those great Army recruiters in the Chicago area that's going to make the pick. Oh, my old hometown of Chicago. Hiya, Chicago. Sergeant Dan Fentley is on the line. Sarge, how you doing? How are you? Fine, and you? Very good. Sarge, the kids in the Chicago area are big record fans, I know. Now, what's one of those numbers moving up the charts there? Well, uh, right now, the Purple Haze. That's the big one by... Jimi Hendrix's parents. Right, and that's our featured record today, Sarge, and thank you for giving it to us. It's called Purple Haze by the Jimi Hendrix Experience. (laughs) 
is the Jimi Hendrix Experience and Purple Haze. Jimmy, who's American, and Mitch and Noel, who are English, and talking with us, Jimmy. Hello, Jim. Hi. Jimmy, tell me, how is it an American makes it big first in England? Well, like, I was playing behind different top 40 R&B groups here in the States, you know, for mm-hmm. about, off and on for about four or five or six years. Just got tired and went to the village and had my own group together, you know. Uh-huh. And so, uh, Jess Chandler comes through and asks what I'd like to come to England. You know, he's seen us down in the village and asked what well, I'd like to come to England. Someone over there and, uh, Mitch Mitchell, the drummer, you know, Noel Redding, the bass player, mm-hmm. and I, we got together and performed our group. And, uh, you know, it's been happening ever since. Well, it sure has. What's happening now is we're out of time, sorry to say. Good to have you on the show, Jimi Hendrix Experience. Okay, take it easy. The In Sound was a regular feature produced by the U.S. Army. Well, he did. He got the sound of the heavens, as he called it. Which, um, I don't know, not many people jump out of planes. And he did, um, 26 jumps. I think if anyone could give us the sound of the heavens, it was him. He also talked about, um, playing, uh, guitar like a wind instrument. You know, making this sound like a trumpet with a mute on it. You know, he was definitely into the um, air sounds and the, and the guitar. He wasn't just dealing with the, you know, earth sounds. You know, he was um, dealing with the, the four elements of sound, which I think is a part of his voodoo child symbiosis, his voodoo child thing. Uh, spoke of wanting to paint pictures with sound, and Third Stone from the Sun was one of the earliest paintings he recorded. It's completely imaginable, you know, it's just about these cats coming down and taking over you know, the Third Stone from the Sun, it, it lasts about seven minutes, and it's uh, instrumental on uh, these guys coming from another planet, and uh, they uh, observe Earth, you know, for a while. And they think that the smartest animal on the whole earth is uh, chickens, you know, hens. And so uh, they just, you know, there's nothing else here to offer. They don't like the people so much, so they just blow it up at the end, you know. They have all these different sounds. They're all made from this, nothing but a guitar, you know, bass and drums, and then uh, slowed down voices.
And that does it for this week's Rock and Roll from the Vault. The original 1982 program was produced by Barry Scott, Craig Street, Don West, and David Henderson. Special thanks to Al Hendricks and the Jimi Hendrix Estate, Alan Douglas, Warner Brothers Records, Tom Lopez and ZBS, the Pacifica Foundation, the Music Annex, Elliot Mazur and Stevie Wonder, John Lee Hooker, Ornette Coleman, John McLaughlin, and Rashawn Roland Kirk. We are now streaming and podcasting online at fromthevaultradio.org. Thanks to all the Pacifica listeners who joined our campus campaign and have sponsored over 1,900 school libraries with the From the Vault series. For more information about how you could join the campus campaign, call the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 735 0230. In this time of educational crisis in our country, we are doing this grassroots style. Join our campus campaign. Visit us online at PacificaRadioArchives.org. From the Vault is presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project, which is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts and past grants from the Grammy Foundation and the American Archive, funded by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This program was written and produced by Mark Torres and Brian DeSager with special permission from Barry Scott, the producer of Jimi Hendrix. The series is executive produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives, and I've been your host, Brian DeShazer. Our theme music is by Kevin Drum Holiday. Thank you for listening. For you.